Without better planning, 2020 would be the darkest winter in modern history. <laughs> well, that's cheery. And now, please listen to our radio show. <laughs> Man. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin, where they're partying, am I right, dudes? On WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF, another hot spot these days. Hope you guys are all doing well. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell quarantine fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Let's start once again. Well, you know, Des, you, you play <laughs> that uh, whistleblower at the top of the show saying yes. it's going to be the darkest, what does he say? The, the darkest winter in U.S. history, potentially? Yeah. yeah that's not exactly going to, you know, make people want to stick, uh, stay, stay with us for the show. <laughs> that's the most depressing thing you could possibly find. Well, sometimes the truth matters. In fact, I would say all the time the truth matters, so it's important to get the truth out there. It does. It is. And, of course, I agreed you should play it, so it's not <laughs> okay. just your fault. All right, but let's, let's start once again with uh, perhaps the uh, good-est news that uh, we were able to rustle up today. On our previous broadcast, we had uh, another one of our uh, regular visits these days from our friend David Dayan, the investigative financial journalist and executive editor at the American Prospect, to discuss a few points from his recent daily unsanitized columns, including his coverage over the past week of the House Democrats' latest proposal for a new COVID-19 emergency relief bill that they are calling in the House the HEROES Act. Well, one provision in that pretty huge $3 trillion, 1,800-page bill which Dan said includes a, a laundry list of Democratic priorities, as well as some stuff that he believes could only be in there as an attempt to sort of offer some stuff to Republicans. 
to try to get them interested in it. Well, one of those measures, and and I can't honestly tell you if this is uh, something that the Democrats wanted or something Pelosi was including to try to entice Republicans. Uh, One of the measures was an expansion of the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, which offers forgivable loans to small businesses, so-called small businesses being any uh, business with less than 500 workers in a single location. But expanding that program to certain nonprofit organizations that were not previously included in the program, including in this expansion, 501c6 groups to ostensibly help out local chambers of commerce, at least according to the Democrats. But the provisions would also allow big industry lobbying groups and dark money political groups who are C6 groups to take advantage of this program that is essentially a loan to cover two months of payroll at these companies that would then ultimately be forgiven after uh, two months if the businesses can demonstrate that, yes, indeed, that money was used to keep employees on the payroll for those two months. Now, nobody likes lobbyists in general. They're very easy to hate, and so are dark money groups that put out these you know, horrible attack ads attacking the very policies that these same lawmakers are, are creating. Well, David Dan called it the uh, K Street bailout when he wrote when he first wrote about this provision right. for all of the lobbying orga- organizations that are based on K Street in D.C. that are going to get money if, in fact, they expand the PPP to include them. So I don't like, you know, lobbyists either, for the most part. But there are, in fact, some good lobbyists out there uh, working for good nonprofit organizations fighting for things like climate change, yes. etc. Either way, if, if the idea here is to keep people employed during the crisis to help the economy, my question to him was, should we be you know, picking some industries that we like versus other industries that we don't? I mean, even those industries that we don't like, the uh, workers, the lobbyists there have uh, families who need to survive this nightmare who might like to be employed for a couple of months. At least that was the question that I I posed to Dave on on the show yesterday. And and also there's an issue about who gets to decide who's a good organization, who's a bad organization. So that that opens up a whole can of worms there as well. Yeah, but you tended, uh, we talked after air, you sort of tended to agree with David Dayan on this. Yes, yes, I did. So basically, it made sense to me to not pay lobbyists uh, in in through the Paycheck Protection Program because David, for example, reported Mm -hmm. on Friday that trade association political action committees have already donated $190 million to lawmakers. So Mm -hmm. this would essentially be a pass-through, a kickback. We pay for the Paycheck Protection Program for those lobbyists to then turn around and give that money back to certain lawmakers to lobby them and to give them campaign donations. Which, which I think is is a legitimate point. When when you make it and uh, as David had made it, uh, my feeling is that you know we either want to keep people employed or we don't. And I'm not sure I'm comfortable deciding which kind of people should be allowed to keep working. But, you know, I I certainly wouldn't mind some kind of a test to determine if said business actually needs the help 
So, you know, a means to, I mean, he, David said that, you know, these companies are, these groups are flush with cash. They don't need well, yeah, uh, because that money. Corporations are already receiving that $4 trillion money cannon okay. from the Federal Reserve. They're still lobbying. They're still fulfilling their lobbying contracts that are paying those lobbyists. Okay, fair enough. So, but, you know, there is a good point, I think, yeah. to be made for, say, the janitors and the security guard and who the receptionist who work at those locations. But if they're flush with money, as you said, then they don't need this uh, mm-hmm. PPP money. So I I would be okay on that basis. But that that's sort of a means test rather than uh, just saying, well, we don't like this industry or we don't like that. My concern was that it sort of leads to the thing that, you know, we will we will with government we will subsidize oil and coal and gas industries because we do. there are campaign contributors but we will not help the renewable energy industry because they hurt our campaign indus- uh, c- contributors in the oil gas and coal industry that's sort of the thinking that i'm concerned with yeah. even though i take your point i take david's point and uh, clearly here i'm outnumbered on this one by progressives <laughs> including uh, dayan and you and also david sirota who offers what he calls some actual good news in his latest email on this issue, uh, which he has been uh, reporting on as well. He said House Democrats included provisions in a new bill that would funnel PPP money to corporations, dark money groups that bankroll political ads. This absurd boondoggle, as he called it, didn't get much attention in the corporate press, but a small group of independent media outlets diligently spotlighted it, he writes, linking to uh, Dan's coverage at The Prospect and similar coverage over at The Intercept. And he says, and here now is a bit of good news. Democratic lawmakers have just quietly stripped it out of their legislation. He says, uh, see page uh, 46 and 47 of this amendment revising the bill. You'll notice that the language now requires PPP recipients to, quote, not make a contribution, expenditure, independent expenditure, or electioneering communication, unquote. In practice, he says, that makes political dark money groups ineligible for the small business loans. Now, I can't tell if it specifically bans actual lobbying organizations as well from getting any money, but clearly this is something that progressives are viewing as good news today, at least the stripping of that one provision And as I said, we will uh, take good news where we can get it. So I wanted to share that with you, especially since we covered it on our previous show. Sir Rhoda goes on to write, I don't want to oversell this. We're living through an era of unthinkable greed in which both parties seem adamantly focused on using the pandemic to enrich their donors. But he doesn't want to oversell it. Uh, The fact that some Capitol Hill monsters ever thought to try to siphon money from mom and pop shops to corporate dark money groups just illustrates how grotesque the situation really is. Well, he may be actually overselling it a little <laughs> bit there and calling them Capitol Hill monsters. I don't know. And I'm not sure that it actually siphons money from mom and pop shops, as he argues, because uh, there seems now, as we also discussed with uh, Dan yesterday, seems to be plenty of money for the moment in that program now that Democrats added another $300 billion or so to it in the last funding bill. But he, uh, he continues, that said, the fact that Democrats felt enough pressure and shame to back off this provision proves the value of independent media. And I'm proud that this newsletter project was part of helping spotlight the situation. Well, me too. I am, whether I agree or not. 
uh, we we do need uh, independent newsletters, independent media like David Sirota, like David Dayan, like The Intercept, dare I say, like the broadcast to actually have these conversations because you don't hear them in many other places in the media. Indeed. Just noting. By the way, you can join Sirota's email newsletter at sirota.substack.com if you'd like to. All right. So uh, with that uh, good news out of the way and uh, news that I'm not sure should be regarded as good or bad, but is about shining a spotlight on stuff that desperately needs such a light. Because at this point, sunlight and uh, good media reporting seem to be the only thing that we have left to try and help save our republic and our planet. And uh, more immediately, I guess, our lives Despite uh, completely, transparently, entirely false White House claims to the contrary, the U.S. still lacks a comprehensive battle plan, really any battle plan at all, according to almost all independent experts. So I'm not sure why AP is uh, sort of underselling that point. We are lacking a, a comprehensive battle plan against the coronavirus in critical areas, including masks, testing, treatments, vaccines, you know, all the actual things that you need in a battle against a virus. In any event, that's according to whistleblower Rick Bright. He warned on Thursday in testimony before a House committee that our window of opportunity is closing. The nation... He testified before the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee could face, quote, the darkest winter in modern history if the virus rebounds. Right until uh, recently was the U.S. government's top vaccine scientist. He was demoted last month by the Trump administration in the middle of a pandemic. And he has now filed a whistleblower complaint, a lawsuit seeking his old job back as the uh, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Preparedness and Response and as the Director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA. They spearhead the government's efforts to support the development of vaccines. So naturally, Donald Trump thought he would just decapitate the head of BARDA. Uh, Rick Bright alleges that he was shoved out of that key coronavirus response job for pushing back on, quote, efforts to fund potentially dangerous drugs promoted by those with political connections. Here was Bright's opening statement before Congress on Thursday. Good morning, Chairwoman Eshoo and Ranking Member Burgess and distinguished members of the subcommittee. I am Dr. Rick Bright, a career public servant and a scientist who has spent 25 years of my career focused on addressing pandemic outbreaks. I have a bachelor's degree in biology and physical sciences and a PhD in immunology and molecular pathogenesis. I've led teams of scientists developing drugs, vaccines, and diagnostics in government, private industry, and for nonprofit organizations. I'm here today in my private capacity. The views are my own and not those of the Department of Health and Human Services. I joined BARDA in 2010, and for the last three and a half years, until April 21st of this year, I had the privilege of serving as its director. BARDA partners with private industry and others in government to address national health security threats. Today, the world is confronting a public health emergency unlike any we've seen in over a century. 
We are facing a highly transmissible and deadly virus, which not only claims lives, but also disrupts the very foundations of our society. The American healthcare system is being taxed to the limit. Our economy is spiraling downward, and our population is being paralyzed by fear, stemming from a lack of a coordinated response and a dearth of accurate, clear communication about the path forward. Americans yearn to get back to work, to open their businesses and to provide for their families. I get that. However, what we do must be done carefully with guidance from the best scientific minds. Our window of opportunity is closing. If we fail to improve our response now based on science, I fear the pandemic will get worse and be prolonged. There will be likely a resurgence of COVID-19 this fall. It will be greatly compounded by the challenges of seasonal influenza. Without better planning, 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history. First and foremost, we need to be truthful with the American people. Americans deserve the truth. The truth must be based on science. We have the world's greatest scientists. Let us lead. Let us speak without fear of retribution. We must listen. Each of us can and must do our part now. On Tuesday, Dr. Fauci delivered a message in a voice that is clear and trustworthy as he encouraged us to act with caution as we return to our daily lives. We should listen to him and other scientists sharing their expertise. While waiting for a cure and a vaccine, which I believe will come, there are things we must do immediately. We must increase the public education about the basics, washing hands, social distancing, appropriate face covering. They're simple but critical steps to buy valuable time until there's vaccine. We need to ramp up production of essential equipment and supplies, including raw materials and critical components. Shortages of these increase the risk of our frontline healthcare workers, and they deserve the best equipment to protect themselves. We need to facilitate equitable distribution of essential equipment and supplies. And finally, we need a national testing strategy. The virus is here. It's everywhere. We need to be able to find it, isolate it, and stop it. We need to have the right testing for everyone who needs it. We need to be able to trace contacts, isolate, quarantine, and appropriately while striving to develop a cure. Initially, our nation was not as prepared as we should have been, as we could have been. Some scientists raised early warning signals that were overlooked, and pages from our pandemic playbook were ignored by some in leadership. There will be plenty of time to look back to assess what has happened so we can improve. But right now, we need to focus on getting things right going forward. We need a comprehensive plan that everyone knows and everyone participates in. Congress has taken important steps to support the response, and there's much more we can do. With your help, we can get through this crisis. Working cooperatively, cooperatively with our global partners, we can and will succeed in finding a cure for COVID-19. But that success depends on what we do today. We will either be remembered for what we did or for what we failed to do to address this crisis. I call on all of us to act, to ensure the health, safety, and prosperity of all Americans. You can count on me to do my part. Thank you. That was whistleblower 
uh, Rick Bright. Dr. The, Rick Bright. Uh, Dr. Rick Bright, thank you, the Deputy Assistant, Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Preparedness and Response and Director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, at least he was, until he was removed from those posts uh, just a few weeks ago by the Trump administration who didn't like what he had to say. And, you know, I'm listening to that uh uh, opening statement, and Desi, I know you heard uh, pretty much about three hours of those hearings yeah. on Thursday. Uh, I'm thinking, boy, that would have been great testimony to have in Congress in January or February or March, even April. Here we are in May, and he's talking about you know the need for personal protective equipment to uh, a, an effort to teach people how to wash their hands properly and, and cover their mouths. Yeah, and also ramping up manufacturing of all the components in order to mass-produce tests, in order to mass-produce a vaccine, in order to distribute a mass-produced vaccine. I mean, this is, he, he, he laid out a very comprehensive list mm-hmm. of what needs to be done that is still not being done, still even though we're five months into this. Into this. Yeah, that's what's amazing to me. Now, he went on to respond to questions from lawmakers uh, for, as I said, the next three hours or so. Uh, offering what is really a welcome rebuttal to the Trump administration's blatantly false, uh, misleading and, frankly, deadly talking points that, as Trump has said just this past Monday at a uh, White House press conference, he said, quote, we have met the moment and we have prevailed. Mm. Well, in fact, as Bright made abundantly clear, we have done neither, not by a long shot, not even close. He testified that the Trump administration's timeline for a coronavirus vaccine is too optimistic, that there is absolutely, quote, no plan to mass produce and distribute one, even if we had one yet. He said that hopes for a vaccine to be ready in 12 to 18 months assume that everything goes perfectly, adding that we never see everything go perfectly. Bright also said he had warned the administration about shortages of personal protective equipment, and he faulted Donald Trump and senior officials for having minimized the outbreak early on with, he said, deadly consequences. He said, quote, I believe Americans need to be told the truth. We do not forewarn people. We do not. We did not train people. We did not educate them on social distancing and wearing a mask as we should have in January and February. All those warnings, he said, all those educational opportunities for the American public could have had an impact in further slowing this outbreak and saving more lives. He was later asked for his uh, recollections going back to January when it became clear to him that this government was not acting on the pandemic in a way that could have saved tens of thousands of lives. Uh, he went on to uh, respond to uh, Congressman Mark Sarbanes. Uh, John Demo- Sarbanes. I'm sorry, John Sarbanes of uh, Maryland, Democrat of Maryland, I believe. Um that uh, he well, he explained one of those moments when he had this haunting feeling that uh, he says still haunts him from January of this year. Tell me about just one specific moment when you had that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach because you were not seeing the response that you knew needed to happen. Congressman, I'll never forget the emails I received from from Mike Bowen and indicating that we are we are 
mask supply or N95 respirator supply was, was completely decimated. And he said, we're in deep shit. The world is. And we need to act. And I pushed that forward to the highest levels I could in HHS and got no response. From that moment, I knew that we were going to have a crisis for our healthcare workers because we were not taking action. We were already behind the ball. That was our last window of opportunity to turn on that production to save the lives of those healthcare workers. And we didn't act. On uh, developing a vaccine, Bright warned lawmakers that even if one could be ready, there currently is no strategy for mass production. So even if we had one tomorrow, even if they announced, even if Dr. Anthony Fauci came out and announced, hooray, miracle, we have found a vaccine for the coronavirus uh, that works. And we've gone through clinical trials in the fastest possible way with the FDA. We've determined it's safe, even though this is impossible. Even if he said that. Yeah. We would have no strategy to actually mass produce it and get it out to the people who need it, which in this case is everybody, every human in the country, every human on Earth. Bright said, if you can imagine the scenario this fall or winter, maybe even early next spring when the vaccine becomes available, there's no one company that can produce enough for our country or for the world. It's going to be limited supplies. He said we need to have a strategy and plan in place now to make sure that we can not only fill that vaccine, make it, distribute it, but administer it in a fair and equitable plan. Oh, I'm sure that will be taken care of smartly by the administration. Don't worry, Mr. Bright. Dr. Bright. They're all about equity. He said we do not have that yet, and it is a significant concern. In fact, there is still no government-wide plan for filling shortages in personal protective equipment. Bright testified all of these months into this uh, mess. Drug and vaccine supply chains, he said, need to be ramped up. And our comprehensive nationwide testing strategy is non-existent, even now. Before warning that a shortage of supplies, li- and this is this just caught my eye, uh, Supplies like syringes, shortages of syringes, he said, could be catastrophic if not addressed in time for the development of a potential COVID-19 vaccine. He noted that he learned that the government, quote, placed their first order for needles and syringes on May 1. And he said another order was placed today. That comes despite Bright's claim in his whistleblower complaint that White House and health department officials were informed of the need for syringes as early as mid-February. That would be three months ago, for those of you keeping track at home. At the same time, Donald Trump told Fox Business on Thursday, the same day that Dr. Bright testified, quote, we will have a vaccine by the end of the year. Our military is being mobilized so that at the end of the year, we will give it to a lot of people very rapidly. That is not going to happen. That is literally not going to happen. Don't be such a naysayer. (laughs) Before Bright's uh, testimony, uh, Trump, of course, had tried to, uh, well, downplay Bright's credibility. He's putting it nicely, dismissing him out of hand on Twitter as, quote, a disgruntled employee who is not liked or respected by people I speak to. 
You know, exactly like all of those other decades-long, highly respected career civil servants and diplomats and military veterans who testified against Donald Trump's unlawful behavior during his impeachment hearings last year. Remember, they were not liked either. They were just disgruntled employees. Uh, the president has not achieved every single thing, as the glowing gaps in the U.S. COVID-19 response shows. Testing and shortages remain. Effective therapies and vaccines are far from achieved. And it took until Thursday for the CDC to release month a month old guidelines. Only after they were heavily edited by the White House from the CDC, the White House, instead of relying on the scientists, the White House thinks they know better. These guidelines on reopening various institutions this uh, weeks after White House officials had nixed a more in-depth version that has still yet to see the light of day. The version that was finally re released by the CDC, uh, in addition to being uh, greatly simplified and removing many of the warnings of the original CDC documents, also do not include guidance for things like reopening places of worship that were in the original document that uh, thanks to uh, whistleblowers and AP's reporting. We know that we know what was in there previously. Uh, instructions on helping places of worship open for business was originally included in the much longer guidance documents than the ones that were finally released by the White House on Thursday, only after AP had revealed that the administration was holding it back holding back that wildly helpful information from the public and from states and from businesses who actually need that information. Government experts like Bright, meanwhile, face uh, ongoing political interference. Dr. Anthony Fauci, for example, he testified on Wednesday that universities and grade schools would need a cautious regional approach if they plan on reopening for school in the fall he said separately that seeking to lift public health orders on businesses and other institutions could result in a resurgence. Oh, you don't say. And Trump responded on Thursday to Fauci by saying that, oh, he wants to play all sides of the equation. To me, it's not an acceptable answer. It is not acceptable to have one of the world's most highly respected infectious disease experts say that, yes, we need to have specific plans and a regional approach for opening schools safely. That's not acceptable, according to Dr. Trump. The problem with viruses, as Fauci and others know, is that they care little about what is acceptable to Dr. Trump. More than 86,000 Americans have now died from COVID-19 in the U.S. over the past two and a half months. That despite Dr. Trump telling us over and over again it was going to be very small, it was going to be just 50,000, then maybe 60, then 70. We are now over 86,000. By the time many of you hear this, I'm sure we'll be pressing 90,000. That represents uh, more than one-fourth of global deaths from COVID-19. It is the world's highest total by far. That, according to the very conservative figures compiled by Johns Hopkins University. And yes, it is now spreading into Trump country most directly. Let's take a quick break and we will come back with with that story and all the good times that are going on in Wisconsin today. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Bradcast. 
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You gotta fight for your right to <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's what they're doing in Wisconsin now, aren't they? <laughs> they fought yes. and now they are partying. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, by the way, uh, we since we ran so late yesterday, Desi Doyen, we mm-hmm. had to uh, bump your uh, Green News report. I know. But we will not let that happen again today. <laughs> okay, I promise. Good. All right. Yeah, people flocked to bars in Wisconsin on Wednesday night, just moments, just moments after the state Supreme Court, the uh, hard right state Supreme Court, voided the state's safer at home orders issued by the Democratic governor there. The ruling quickly triggered, triggered a jumble of policies in counties and cities as officials tried anyway to set their own rules related to COVID-19. The state's right-wing and incredibly political Supreme Court found in a 4-3 to ruling that emergency orders issued by the Democratic Governor Tony Evers' administration were unlawful and unforceable. It is the first time that a state Supreme Court has struck down emergency orders issued by a governor's office due to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, I haven't had time to look at uh, uh, who voted and how on that state Supreme Court uh, where this the safer at home restrictions were struck down four to three. But I do know that Jill Karofsky, who was just elected to the court, To the state Supreme Court, the progressive who was elected in their April 6th election held in Wisconsin, uh, dangerously held after that same state Supreme Court basically forced everyone uh, in the state to to go out and risk uh, being infected by the virus rather than uh, extending a stay at home. uh, I'm sorry, a vote by mail uh, ballots and so forth. She's not the that progressive who won anyway in that statewide election. She is not yet seated on the bench. So I don't know if Daniel Kelly, the person that she ousted in that election, uh, voted uh, in this matter. But it was four to three. It's uh, my understanding that he did. That he did vote. Yes, and, and that he, he voted did to toss out. Fully participate in that vote. And was he one? He tossed it out. Tossed it out because I know it was like a seven to two majority or something like that. There was a, a recusal or something. Anyway, had he had she been seated, she's been elected to the court. She's just not seated there yet. But had she been seated, uh, theoretically, that ruling could have been four to three the other way. Yeah, the lame duck dude was the one who voted in favor of rejecting it. His last gift to Wisconsinites. What a jerk kill them all on the way out the door. In any event, uh, when that ruling came down, it prompted the Tavern Tavern League of Wisconsin, an industry group, to issue a statement encouraging all tavern and bar owners to open their doors immediately. 
Well, shortly thereafter, a video posted by Nick's Bar in Platteville quickly went viral, showing people crowded together at the bar just 45 minutes after Wednesday night's reopening. It showed patrons packed together, dancing, banging on the bar top. Nobody there, and not even the bartender, is seen wearing a mask. So I guess everything is fine. I guess they've been listening to Donald Trump, who says it's fine. Go out, have fun. The most important thing here is the economy, not your goddamn lives. Uh, Wisconsin Public Radio reports that uh, um, Republicans originally asked the court for a six-day stay. That would have kept the current safer-at-home order in place while a new one could be negotiated between the governor and the legislature. But... The court didn't even do that. Instead, they decided to strike down the order effective immediately. The timing of the court decision was perfect for the Iron Hog Saloon in Port Washington, Wisconsin. The establishment's owner, Chad Arndt, said last week that he was going to open his doors to customers on Wednesday at 3 p.m. no matter what the court decided. After being open uh, Wednesday night, Arndt thanked patrons for their support, prompting one commenter to write, quote, we'll always support those who stand up for liberty. <laughs> CBS Milwaukee uh, affiliate WDJT uh, was at Buzzard's Nest in West Allis, which was filled with people, they report, who were eager to get out of the house after more than a month of isolation. One bar goer said he feels safe and happy to get out. It's been kind of boring sitting in my house, he said. While the statewide safer-at-home order is no longer in effect, Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett's office said in a statement that the city's public health order, the city's public health order, that remains in place, quote, including all provisions on public gatherings, restaurants, and bar operations. So we've got a federal government that will not... Uh, issue uh, blanket rules to the country. So there is pan confusion from state to state and different orders and uh, from state to state. And by the way, each of these uh, states, you know, they don't have walls built around uh, the borders. So if you've got one state where they've got no stay at home orders and everyone's out there getting infected, then they're driving to another state to go visit, say, go to the bar in Wisconsin well, you get the idea. So uh, originally we had states dealing with this. Now in Wisconsin, we've got towns and cities trying to come up with their own provisions to keep their own residents safe. And not just their own residents. Remember, this is also to protect healthcare workers. Oh, Those yeah. who are faced with the uh, possibility of infection every time they go to work, every single day. And in fact, the uh, that was the reason, uh, essentially, for these initial lockdowns was to uh, uh, protect the local and national uh, health officials as an effective, and it worked, as an effective protective measure, at least to some extent. And still, says CBS News, many business owners feel staying closed to prevent exposure to the virus is not worth the financial burden. Well, maybe not now, maybe not to them, maybe not until one of their own family members, uh, you know, dies in a state where uh, Donald Trump reportedly won by just over 20,000 votes in 2016 up there in Wisconsin. Trump, of course, is supporting these openings despite his own government's guidance instructing these places to not open at this time. 
But Trump may want to be careful what he is wishing for, at least according to a, a new study out today. COVID-19 has been spreading heavily in areas of the country with high political support for Donald Trump, potentially increasing the disease's visibility and death toll in areas that are loyal to the president. According to data compiled by the Brookings Institution's Bill Fry, COVID-19 is now spreading faster in less populated areas, leaving uh, leaving big cities and now entering rural America. Fry told TPM's Josh Kavinsky that a big part of the shift is the disease moving to the south and into the Midwest. Is is Wisconsin the Midwest? I would think it's the upper Midwest. Upper Midwest, yes. Uh, and he said into a lot of rural counties. I wonder if there are rural counties where they have the buzzards nest bar and the hogs whatever that have been opening. Uh, data that Fry published in a blog post at the Brookings Institution showed that the number of people residing in high, quote, high prevalence COVID counties. These are areas with a rate of 100 cases per 100,000 people or more that the um, the number of people residing in those counties had tipped in late April from being a majority of counties that voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 to a majority that voted for Donald Trump in 2016. He took uh, county level case counts compiled by The New York Times. He combined it with population data from the Census Bureau and then overlaid it with data showing which counties voted for Clinton in 2016 and which voted for Trump. As of May 10, the data suggests Trump counties are now leading Clinton counties in having highly prevalent COVID-19 outbreaks by a margin of roughly 6% and rising. He says it's not only that it's Trump counties, it's also that a huge portion of the country overall is now living in high prevalence counties. The data reflects a large, uh, larger trend in the spread of the disease around the country as a whole. For example, on March 29, Fry found that just 8 percent, this is March 29, 8 percent of the U.S. population lived in a so-called high prevalent, uh, high prevalence COVID-19 county. Now, wait, March 29, how many? Uh, 8%. Okay. Uh, that would be a rate of uh, 100 cases per 100,000 people. Uh, as of May 10, however, that's just, what, six weeks later, the number had increased from 8% to 72% of the population. 72% of the population now lives in a high-prevalence county. And, yes, that affects Trump. Uh, voters uh, a little bit more than Hillary Clinton voters, but never mind that, it affects everyone, 72% of the population. At the same time, only 23% of people live in high-prevalence areas uh, were urban residents. The rest were either in suburban or rural areas. You know, Trump country. So where this was uh, once confined largely the, the, the outbreaks to the most urban areas, not anymore. Now it's in suburban areas. Now it's in rural areas. Fry said, if you look at the map of states that Trump took in 2016, and especially he notes in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, these are small town areas that Donald Trump mopped up. 
And now, guess what? Now COVID-19 is mopping them up. Researchers at the Kaiser Family Foundation found that uh, COVID-19 began to increase its rate of spread in rural areas in late April. You know, around the time that Fox News was out there telling you there's nothing to worry about, that this is all a hoax and uh, separate projections from the CDC uh, and, and FEMA that were leaked in early May to The New York Times. We covered it on this show. They were leaked to The Times because they were not released. But those documents suggested that the country's uh, coming hotspots would mostly be in mo uh, more rural areas than where the U.S. crisis had begun in big urban areas like New York City and Detroit. And it looks like that is now coming to pass. Moreover, the disease, uh, the rural spread has uh, stoked fears that it may catastrophically intersect with the pre-existing rural health care crisis, which we also talked about since 2010. 126 rural hospitals have closed across the country, largely because of financial shortfalls. The existing providers that are haven't shut down, they run on tight margins. They have very limited space in their ICU units. Meanwhile, the rural population in general may be more susceptible to COVID-19 than the population of urban areas. According to data from the National Rural Health Association, chronic respiratory disease is 75% more common in rural areas than in urban areas. One doctor in St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is now a hot spot, told TPM that cases were coming in from rural areas around the city of uh, 68,000, but that doctors' ability to discern the extent of local spread had been limited by the, still is limited, by the continued lack of testing. Dr. John Mayowald, a cardiologist at Centricare St. Cloud Hospital, said we're surrounded by a whole bunch of very, very rural areas of farmers, very small communities, and none of those people are tested. He said, so we really have no idea what the community spread is like right now. He said, in the county where I live, in one week there were 50 cases, and the next week there were 800 cases. And we didn't know that without testing, he said. But a lot of these counties um, still, still three and a half months or wherever we are now into this crisis do not have testing, despite what Donald Trump is saying and despite the fact that now it is affecting his voters. Well, I'm sure he'll be celebrating on November 4. I'm sure this will all work out well for everyone. A music video parody, however, before we get to your Green <laughs> News report, Des, yes. uh, a music video parody of the 1991 R.E.M. hit Losing My Religion uh, skewers Donald Trump's approach to COVID-19. Uh, it uses his very own words against him. And for some reason, uh, it seems uh, kind of appropriate today. We have to get our country open, and we have to get it open soon. That's me and Corona. That's me in the spotlight, abusing my position. Trying to blame Chinese flu. And I don't care if you have caught it. Oh no, I said too much. Theater. I thought that I heard you coughing. 
I thought that I heard you wheeze. I think time let the old folks die. Yeah. Not just the old folks, the Trump folks at this point as well. We yep. can't keep our country closed. We have to open our country. Yeah, good luck with that, Mr. President. Good luck with that, Mr. and Mrs. America. And all the ships at sea, apparently. That uh, song, by the way, was created and posted by British media site Politics Joe. Quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report and nothing but cheer <laughs> as ever. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Well, apparently I did not stop the world on our previous broadcast to make sure there was time for the Green News Report because I ran quite out. All right. But we weren't, just to be clear, we were not holding it back like the White House holding back CDC documents. <laughs> we were not trying to censor it, keep it from the public until we could rewrite it to make it more palatable for the public. Uh, no, we just ran out of time. Yes. So uh, <laughs> let's not do that again. And by the way, as uh, p- places are opening up around the country, that beautiful, clear air that we were enjoying for a couple of months, that is also disappearing along with it, as we find out in our latest Green News Report. You don't need us to tell you. The mercury's up, the air is thick, and the sun is baking everything it hits. Unsurvivable heat projected for decades into the future is already occurring now. You know, one of the things we've done is created so much we we produce. We're the number one producer in the world right now. Despite crashing oil demand, Trump administration speeding up drilling on public lands. Plus, a new study finds natural gas stoves are a major source of indoor air pollution. Great, I can't go outdoors, I can't stay indoors. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And the reason why climate change predictions are 20 years out, 30 years out, is because it isn't happening. Ah, thanks for clearing that up, Rush Limbaugh. I was getting worried. This is your Green News Report. It's, cla- it, it's, it's all modeling data. And it's, it's no different than garbage in and garbage out. Okay, Desi Doyen, so you're telling me that if we survive the virus, we may not survive the heat. <laughs> exactly. Oh, great. A new study warns that levels of extreme heat and humidity that climate scientists had projected would not arrive for several decades into the future are actually occurring already. The study published in the journal Science Advances found that parts of the Middle East have already hit the maximum temperatures that the human body can survive, the equivalent of a 160-degree heat index. And parts of the U.S. Gulf Coast have also recorded heat index 
index extremes of 125 degrees. The researchers focused on wet bulb temperature. That's a way of measuring moisture and heat in the air. Weather Channel meteorologist Kate Parker explains. The air's moisture content makes a tremendous difference in how our body reacts to heat. With higher wet bulb temperatures and therefore heat indices, sweat cannot evaporate off of our skin to keep us cool. Heat-related illness kills more Americans than any other weather disaster. Well, that's cheery. Meanwhile, despite crashing oil prices, the Trump Bureau of Land Management has announced it is moving full speed ahead with new oil and gas lease sales in New Mexico, including opening up new areas for drilling and mining next to the ancient Native American site Chaco Canyon National Historic Park. The public has only until May 28th to speak up during the very short public comment period online at regulations.gov, but only half of the households on tribal lands have broadband internet access. Well, let me speak up then. We already have more goddamn oil and gas than we need. We're keeping it in storage on boats offshore because we have nowhere to put it. And now we're drilling for more on public lands next to ancient burial grounds. Genius. A new study finds that natural gas and propane stoves and appliances are significant contributors to indoor air pollution. UCLA researchers found that after just one hour of use, a gas-fired stove or oven raised indoor concentrations of nitrogen dioxide to levels that exceeded national air quality standards for outdoor air, as much as five times higher than acceptable limits. Also great news. So uh, what happens? Will it make me sick? Yes, it is related to numerous respiratory ailments. To decrease indoor air pollution, the study proposes that households transition to zero emissions electric appliances. That would reduce health care costs and save lives. And I would note that converting all U.S. buildings to all electric appliances would be a massive jobs generator. Well, that it would. So yes, it is a bit weird for outdoor air to be less dangerous than indoor air quality for now, as countries have hunkered down during the pandemic to slow the spread of the COVID-19 virus. But here in the United States, vehicle traffic is ticking up again and right on cue. So is air pollution as states slowly begin reopening at different speeds. The Houston Chronicle reports that levels of air pollution in Houston have quickly returned to previous levels. But the shutdowns provided scientists with an unprecedented natural experiment for studying global pollution. According to two new studies focused on China, coronavirus shutdowns resulted in a 63 percent reduction in nitrogen dioxide pollution and a 35% reduction in soot, tiny particles that penetrate deep into the lungs. A third study estimates that the drop in air pollution likely saved more than 10,000 lives in China, more than died from the virus. Wow. In Europe, a new analysis found similar benefits. Harmful air pollutants fell by nearly half, and the researchers estimated that avoided 11,000 air pollution-related deaths. So obviously gains against pollution are temporary, but they do offer us a glimpse of a cleaner future that we could have. But of course, first, you got to vote for it. I'm in. Finally, Sweden has become the third European nation to close its last coal plant following Belgium and Austria in late April. Here in the United States, upper Midwest electric company Great River Energy announced that it will close its North Dakota coal plant by 2022 and replace it with clean renewable energy sources, primarily wind power, because it's cheaper. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Blue skies, smiling at me.
It's a fun song. Thank you very much, uh, Desi Doyen. Uh, you know, I'm struck as I uh, as I you 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 report on the people whose lives were saved because of the lack of air pollution right. in, during this shutdown. Well, you know, there's been this Republican talking point that I'm sure you have heard over and over again from Trump and, and others that, oh, well, you know, keeping uh, things shut down, that also kills people from drug abuse and depression. Now, I haven't seen what those numbers are, but as long as we're going to play that game, shouldn't we also include all of the people whose lives are saved from the lack of air pollution during the shutdown in uh, in this consideration? Absolutely. And, you know, the issues that we have with mental health are not issues that uh, came up with the coronavirus. Those were issues that were pre-existing. And if we had a good mental health care system available oh, to yeah. people, then they might have had some help with that. We could do something about that, too. Yeah, it seems like the coronavirus coronavirus has exposed a lot of problems that have been around for a really long time and offers us an opportunity to remake our country and remake our economy for a more sustainable, more healthy, cleaner and safer society for people. But again, first thing you must do is vote for it. It doesn't just naturally I was going to ask, what are you running for? Because <laughs> whatever it is, by the way. I'll vote for you. <laughs> Count me in. Uh, all right. We got to get out. Our thanks to uh, Desi Doyen. Candidate Desi Doyen, <laughs> our producer, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it or any other show that we have ever done for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by generous listeners like you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Always happy to hear from you. And you can find, follow, and share all that I do on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Never saw the sun.